Welcome back to the Fellowship Hall, a podcast on racial justice, radical friendship, and the church. Today, I am so excited to have on Kat Armas. Kat just published her first book, Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. This book is incredible, y'all. Seriously. Kat herself is a two-time Fuller Theological Seminary grad and hosts the popular Protagonistas podcast, which I'm going to say is one of my personal favorites. In this podcast, she highlights the stories of everyday women of color. In addition to writing this book, she also writes for Christianity Today, Sojourners Relevant, Christians for Biblical Equality, Fuller Youth Institute, and the Missio Alliance. So, Kat, thanks so much for being on the Fellowship Hall with us today. Um, If you would just introduce yourself and your book and your podcast and all the cool stuff you have going on right now. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And so I'm Ken Armas. Uh, I'm a Cuban-American author and podcaster. And my book, Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength, uh, just looks at the Bible and looks at, you know, Christian history and history in general and and um, just highlights women whose stories maybe have been untold or overlooked and, and sort of just argues that, um, you know, we don't need formal uh, theological education uh, in order to be theologians. And our greatest theologians are our uh, marginalized grandmothers and tias, aunts and, uh, you know, mothers and, and all of that. Um, and then my podcast, yeah, I also just highlight the stories of women of color and church leadership and theology. And so I'm sort of doing the same thing, just saying, hey, what are um, women of color doing? And, you know, and they're doing amazing things, obviously, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, so we just have fun conversations. So that's a little bit about me. Right. Yeah. And they are, I mean, I've, like I was saying to you before the, before we started recording, I've been a huge fan for years. Um, you know, I found you on Twitter a couple of years ago and I was like, like snaps to everything you were tweeting out. So uh, I don't know. I saw this book was coming too, and I heard about it and I was, um, yeah. And so I had just finished reading it, uh, when I like, and I, I mean, literally I binged it for three days. Oh, uh, so good. I hope that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, it definitely is. And you know, what, what led you to write this book? I mean, you, you've done a lot of work and like you're considered a public theologian. What was the like, was there a particular point of inspiration or a person? Yeah. So in the beginning of my book and um, you read it, so you'll kind of, you know, hopefully remember this, but in the beginning of my book, I start talking about um, this idea of research grief and, um, For me, it was, uh, you know, I was in seminary and I was studying the the history of women in Christianity and sort of just what women have done throughout history and how women have been silenced, but how they have, you know, kind of risen up and and served God and done amazing things despite, you know, all of the oppression and suppression. Um, And in that studying that, you know, of course, a lot of the women that I was that we were reading about were European women. And I thought, well, what about Cuban women, right? You know, I'm Cuban. And so what can I learn about women, not even just Cuban women, but women from the Caribbean or women from Latin America, women who, um, whose backgrounds I feel like I can really connect with. Um, and that's where, you know, I just really began to study the history of Christianity in the Caribbean. And of course I knew about colonization. And of course I had, you know, heard about all of these things, but it became really personal, right? That was in the moment that I said, well, this is not just history. This is mine. This is personal. 
you know, I wear this, this sort of generational trauma in my bones and in my body and, and my grandmother, you know, carried it in her bones and her body. And so, so that's really where um, the idea for the book came about. Um, But also, I think before that, really, it was leaving my context, my Cuban context, where I was part of the dominant culture. And I ended up, you know, in a in the subculture of the subculture of white evangelicalism. And it was there um, where I was forced to wrestle with a being a woman and, and, you know, evangelicalism and it's particularly white evangelicalism and B um, being a Latina woman, you know, where I was raised by a single mom and a single grandmother. And so I had, you know, this, you know, I was raised to be confident and I was raised to, because I had no other choice. I, I, there was no male figures in my life. And so um, really being met with a lot of opposition uh, when I left my context, you know, um, so I was really wrestling with a lot of that stuff and thinking, well, where does, where does my, you know, is my culture, my upbringing, everything that I thought about God, which was raised and formed in the Roman Catholic church, is all of this wrong? Was it not, you know, and that's really the messages that I was hearing that I needed to be, you know, I needed to save my grandmother, you know, I needed to evangelized to her and it's like she was so committed to her faith in the church and so yeah so it was uh, wrestling with all of these things at different times in my life that this book came about um and it was a really a reclaiming of who i am my culture my identity my gender all of those things and and saying no like i you know God has called me, not just me, but my abuela, who is uneducated, who, you know, is, was a widow, like she is a theologian. And I have, I've learned the most from her, um, as opposed, you know, versus in seminary and formal theological education. So it was a lot of those things that sort of just came together uh, into Abuelita Faith. That's awesome. And, and I, you know, you mentioned like being the embodied witness, right? The embodied witness of grandmothers, the embodied witness of people that, you know, like you say, I think it's around page yeah, on 73, you say um, there's a power in naming. Um, but you also talk about the unnamed people, right? Like unnamed women, the unnamed and marginalized and othered. Um, one specific example that stuck out to me was Howard Thurman's grandmother, who had such an oh, impact yeah. on him. Um, and so, yeah, you know, what in, in doing this research and reading through this, were you surprised by the amount of unnamed women, both in the biblical text and in the lived experiences of theologians? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I want to say that I wasn't, but I probably was. <laughs> I wasn't surprised because, you know, it, it's not, it, it, we deep in, deep down, we all know that our grandmothers and our mothers are the beacons of spirituality, right? They're the ones that have raised us and formed us and and uh, many of them have gone unnamed their stories untold and so that's something that i feel like all of us have some sort of connection with um doesn't have to be a biological grandmother but just you know stories we've heard um but i think what was surprising for me was as i was doing research in the bible and i, I was digging through and ex- you know excavating these stories in scripture I think I was most surprised by, wait a minute, you know, this has been here all along and this was never taught. This isn't told, you know, these are literally stories in in the Bible that we've read, you know, this book that we've read over and over and over again. And I was surprised by how many people don't know the story of Rizba. Uh, you know, how many people have no idea who Rizba is or um, yeah, just things like that. Or they have never read the story of Ruth and Naomi with the lens that focuses on their agency and, and not on Boaz, how he saved them. Right. You know, we have, so these stories that we have read, but they have been, they've been read with 
such a, a, a patriarchal and a, an oppressive and marginalizing lens, you know? And so I think I was surprised as I did the research and just digging up these liberative readings and also engaging with folks who, who say, this is the first time I've heard this, you know, and this is a Bible or, or a faith that I was raised in. A friend of mine was asking me about the book and I would mentioned I was interviewing this you this week and he said, well, I'm thinking about reading it, but how would you describe it? And I was like, well, if you've read Latinas Evan Evangelicus and like mix that with like Rachel Held Evans inspired, I was like, that's what I'm like. That's, that's wonderful. I love that. Um, I'm honored. <laughs> and, I, and I, you know, so you mentioned to in the book, you, you know, you do this amazing thing where you like intertwine the biblical accounts of people that, you know, even as a seminary student, I've been reading the Bible regularly for years have just read it through three biblical studies classes and there's names that I was like huh did I like right. skip over that when I was did I not you know and then reading through the story of Ruth and Naomi focusing on agency um they were just refreshing ways to read that, that felt like they breathed a new life into the scripture um could you you know one of the things when we approach scripture though especially in these sort of like Baptist circles a lot of the times when we're talking about women or feminism or, or things like that, it always becomes a debate between complementarianism and egalitarianism, right? right? And, you know, it seems like what your book is providing too is is not just, you know, there you're like, this account isn't actually like debated in scripture in this way, right? Like women have always right. had a place. Um, could right. you talk a little bit about that and how you've seen that sort of develop in your work? Or have you heard that sort of response from your the stuff you've been doing? Yeah. So um so when I you know, I, of course, I was part of that debate, you know, early on in my, you know, seminary career, just in my, you know, evangelical life, you know, because I didn't grow up in the evangelical church. And so that was all new to me when I sort of transitioned into evangelicalism or Protestantism, I would say in general, um, was this, you know, egalitarian, complementarian sort of debate or, or even conversation to me, I had no framework for that. You know, I, growing up, my my mother and my grandmother were my mother and my father, you know, my grandmother had to work full time because she had to support her family. My mother had to work, you know, so there was never granted, I know that's not the what evangel, or excuse me, what complementarian egalitarian is, but it was just this idea of just everything is egalitarian everything is you know women um are in every place in society but i will say um that at the same time there were traditional patriarchal you know overtones because the cuban culture just like most cultures is patriarchal at the end of the day and so you know my grandmother still was expected to work full-time but also you know be in the kitchen and cook for um you know her husband and all of those things so it was you know i sort i sort of saw both of, of of those worlds um but i would say in the writing of my book um i sort of just assume right that um women have been in these places you know all the like since forever you know um if you read paul's letters you know that women like phoebe were delivering his letter and they were preaching his letter and he, you know so i sort of just assume that but i still want to make sure that like you're getting it right like so i'll just throw it in there but i'm not arguing for egalitarianism or complementarianism i'm just saying hey this is how it's been so take it or leave it you know but this is how it's been you know what i mean um and so yeah i think that um it's interesting because it's it's very complicated. And so I think the story of Esther is a perfect example where Esther is this hero, you know, Esther, she um, saves, you know, the, the, her people and, and, you know, all of these things. And she is like this, this heroine, this strong, powerful character. But 
in the beginning of the story, she has to bend the knee to patriarchy in order to, you know, I mean, she is the beauty queen and she has to parade in front of the king. Um, but at the same time, you know, as the story progresses, she ends up disobeying him multiple times. And so it's this, this complicated, messy, um, what I say is Awalita theology is this complicated, messy, um, theology of survival and i think that that's where many of the women uh, throughout history and in the bible find themselves in you know they are um doing all the things right but at the same time yeah they are bending the need of patriarchy because they have to survive right um they are looking for a husband like ruth and naomi because they need to you know they don't want to be widows right um because at that time that was a almost like a death sentence in a way, you know? Um, so yeah, so it's this complicated reality. And so I, I sort of, you know, I, I'm not even in that egalitarian, complementarian conversation. I'm sort of just saying, hey, women have been doing the thing from the beginning and they've been doing it in really um, subversive ways um, by, by doing what they have to do to survive. Right. And I love that aspect. Like, I love that approach in the book was it wasn't, you know, it wasn't you didn't start out with a theological position and make an argument and then try to defend it a whole book. You know, like I've, I've read so many like that. It was, you know, contextually, I'm going to provide the context, both of the biblical narrative and women that exist in it that are named and unnamed. And right. then also the real lived experience of theologians and people that come out of context where God's still working today. And that's awesome. Yeah. And, and, Building on and that. I think that, sorry, I just want to say one thing. And I think that what you point out, like, I'm glad that you picked up on that because I think lived experience cannot be um, stuck in some sort of category, right? Like lived experience is so messy and lived experience, um, you know, there are so many different components to it. And so you can't, you know, if you're really living out theology, you can't um, just stick to one specific camp or group or, you know, like I used to be a staunch Calvinist, you know, and then like, I just started, I don't know, listening to stories and reading things. And I'm like, this is, you know, you just can't, you have to be flexible and um, open to what God and the spirit, um, how God is moving. And when you read scripture, it's like all over the place, <laughs> you know? Right. And you know, where, so, you know, doing this research and, and being a sort of public theologian, right? Like, where have you seen this, like, sort of breaking through of the kingdom? Like, where have you seen this work being done well? Where have you seen, like, churches becoming places where the marginalized and others have a voice? And how can more churches be that? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I wish I had a better response when it comes to the church. But I will say, where do I see that happening? Man, I see that around Abuela's dinner table, where it is her table, right? She owns the table. She is not a guest at someone's table, um, but it is her table. And she makes the rules, right? She is an immigrant woman who doesn't speak English, you know, living in America. Granted, it's Miami. So yes, she has certain privileges there because, you know, Miami is predominantly Cuban. But just, you know, in the general sense, um, she is a woman that is uneducated, that wouldn't be considered a theologian, but yet we come to her table and we sit at, as guests in her table. And I think that that really, um, if we're willing to sort of flip what we think, where we think theology is being done, where we think, you know, God is really in the move. And it's not, you know, what I'm arguing in Alita Faith, it's not in the pulpits or even, you know, in, in the, the church, you know, quote unquote setting. I mean, it is 
at the dinner table. It is in the beauty salon. It is on the dance floor, right? It is um, in the, the room where she is sewing and she was making clothes so that she could sell for her family. And, you know, it is in those spaces um, where I see the church breaking through, where I see God most at work. Um, and I think that if we're willing to look at those places, look in those places and not just look there, but but sit in those spaces to learn and to receive, um, you know, to, to really be expectant of God in those spaces, again, in the beauty salons, right. Um, in these spaces where we would never think, Oh yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah. God could be there. No, no, no. That's where God is mostly, you know, that's where God's most at, you know what I mean? Um, if, if you know what I mean, just in the sense that that's where we can experience most of God. And so, yeah, I, I think it's in those spots, those unassuming places. Yeah, absolutely. And my, my theology professor i just ended a theology class and um dr costello at duke and he he would always say and he's also from he's mexican-american um and he's he says a lot like theology is contextual not because like that's the best way to do it it's the only way to do it we all have a context right. yeah. and we all we all sit at some table with some amen. people and talk about something and that's context right. um and so what right, is it amen. you've been a lot of people are, are calling you like a public theologian right and that's sort of like a a new word like public theologian, public intellectual. What what does it mean to you to be a public theologian, and how can others join you in doing the work of being a prophetic witness? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I I wouldn't. I've never called myself a public theologian, but that's a fun you know thing to call myself. I guess. Um, I would say it's just this idea um, of believing, and this is what I sort of argue in Awalita Faith, is that, that we are all theologians. We are all doing the study of God, right? We are all, and, and theology isn't just what we're doing intellectually, but it's how we're living out our lives. And so theology is, again, the sewing and the dancing and the cooking, and, and all of that is a part of this doing of theology, right? And so, you know, when I think of public theologian, I think of just doing that out loud, right? Doing that in community out loud, um, so that we're all sort of in this thing together, you know? And so as I'm learning or as I'm studying or as I'm um, experiencing God, I'm doing so inviting, you know, anyone who's willing to listen to join me in doing that. Um, and it's going to be in those spaces and moments and movements um, that are overlooked or unassuming, right? And so I'm experiencing God when I'm sitting outside, you know, with my new daughter, right? Just looking at the trees and, and trying to see the things that she's looking at it, or, you know, with, with my puppy sitting next to me and I'm, I'm taking in the, the, the scenery, the world around me, creation, nature, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that, you know, is something that I'm, I'm doing out loud. And, I, and so I, and I come home and I share it and, um, and I invite you to that, to experience God in these, um, in these places where, you know, traditionally we haven't been told that God is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. God is all things, but no, God is um, very, uh, very intentionally there. So I always like to end with like offering the listener something to chew on or think about. It can be a specific example. It can be a quote you love, or it can be an idea that, you know, we've maybe touched on or haven't touched on. Um, could you leave us with something to chew on this week as we're thinking through like this, waiting for your book to come in the mail from Amazon? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you for asking that. So I think of Fellowship Hall, you know, and I think of, you know, the plates and all of that. Um, and I, and what we were talking about earlier of just um, my grandmother's table and, and we are guests in her table. And, and something that I think about so much is, is how are we being good guests? 
guests, right? You know, Jesus was a good guest. Jesus, and, and I think in traditional Christianity and evangelicalism, you know, we're supposed to always be the hosts, right? We're supposed to, you know, host this and invite this person and, you know, tell this person about this. And, and it's sort of like we're in that position of power as being a host. But yeah, where, how and where are we being a, a good guest? You know, I think of just imagine, you know, if we all with varying levels of privilege um, really submitted to being a guest, um, not for any other reason, no ulterior motive, um, just letting others love and serve us. Um, and so, yeah, so I don't know, I guess, where are you and how are you being a good guest the way Jesus was? I love that. Thank you so much for that. Christian hospitality is, there's so much to be said and, and right. reflected on and contemplated there. But uh, if I could, could we end by by praying together? Just I'd love to say a prayer for what you're doing and all the work that you do. And I would love that. Thank you. Dear God, creator and sustainer and redeemer, thank you for the abuelitas in our life. Thank you for the voices of public theologians, those that are named. And Lord, thank you for those that are unnamed, for the generations of women that have for the Holy Word, for the Theotokos, for the different faiths and traditions and perspectives that are all trying to come to a grasp on who you are. Though that is an impossible task, I give thanks for Kat and the work that she does and her writings and her podcasts. And in her life, Lord, in the sermon that she preaches with her life, and help her be with her and make your presence known as she elevates the voices of those who are not named and not heard, but who live as theologians around the dinner tables. In your name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is great.